Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Well, if, good morning, everyone, and those of you that are watching online, good morning to you as well. Uh, Psalm 88 is where I would ask you to turn. It's page 422 in the Church Bibles. Psalm 88, um, page 422. Okay, this is the word of God. Uh, A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah for the director of music, according to Mahaleth, Leanneth, a maskal of Haman the Ezrite. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of trouble, and my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit and the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. There's a little subscript there, Selah, which is pause. Verse 8, you have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? And again, Selah, pause. Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But... I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and I'm in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. All right. That is the word of God. And let's let's just pray. Father, would you please open wide our hearts and our minds to this psalm? I pray that everything needed for me to preach it and everything needed for all of us to listen to it would be given graciously from you to us. As in everything, God, you're always our only hope. And that is why we pray. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. One of the reasons I think God's people genuinely love the Psalms, and, you know, besides the fact that it's in the Bible, 
is at the Psalms. And remember, the Psalms have always under, be understood in two ways. So it's a hymn book from the Bible for the church to help the church sing. And it's also wisdom literature from the Bible to help the church think. So the Psalms are given to us to help us sing and to help us think. And when it comes to wisdom literature, it's not like, you know, in dry data, but in facts, song, poems, prayers. And whatever situation you find yourself in, you will find in the Psalms either words or sentences or whole thoughts or whole Psalms that fit your situation precisely and therefore can be applied to your case exactly, so much so that it seems like the psalm was written in a specific way, specifically for you. So there's just something about the psalms. Uh, Someone said it like this, every season of the soul in the psalms, we find a God for all seasons. And they said that because historically, the psalms have been divided by theologians In many ways, the first way that I learned, and probably one of the best, is from a gentleman named Walter Brueggemann. And he says, when you look at the Psalms, you see essentially three divisions. There's Psalms of orientation, there's Psalms of reorientation, and there's Psalms of disorientation. Okay? So the Psalms of orientation are the kind of Psalms that you read and everything is well in the psalmist's word, right? So you're riding that wave and it is lovely, it is easy, it is light and bright. Life is oriented in the way that is beautiful. You, you feel it. If you would, you have the Midas touch. And the psalmist rightly gives thanks to God for that. That's Psalms of orientation. Then there's Psalms of reorientation. And those are the Psalms where things in life were going really bad and they were very broken and very terrible, very confusing. Nothing was working. But then things start to reorient themselves back into the way that they were meant to be. So you're getting back into the stream where there's a beauty to life. There's a rhythm of life. Things are dependable, countable, um, beauty, order, plenty is returning. Just like it used to be. If you would, it's spring again. And then thanks just emanates from the psalmist to God that life is getting reoriented back to the way it was meant to be. And the final psalm are the psalms of disorientation. And Psalm 88, I mean, you probably picked it up. This is a thick disorientation. This is kind of like the dark night of the soul psalms. And so disorientation is life is out of whack. It's incredibly sad. It's horrible. Your faith is being challenged. You lack assurance. God appears to be terribly far away. It just seems like, you wouldn't say this out loud, but it seems like he doesn't care at all. And everything is dark. And so fear is everywhere. Sadness is everywhere. Feelings of abandonment, frailty. No one is there, right? And death is just right outside the door of your life. And it's so bad that in Psalms of disorientation, now pay attention to this, that all the usual things that used to get you out of those things, they're not working. If you look at your Bible, verse, verse 2, verse 13, pray, pray, verse 13, every day, all the time, I'm praying, I'm crying out to you, God, verse 1, verse 13. And then look at verse 10, I'm having those real thoughtful conversations with you, God, and I'm reasoning with you. About my predicament, verse 10, do you show your wonders to the dead? Can, can dead people praise you? Verse 12, right? Will you, God, hide your face from me? 
Verse 15, my life is essentially a bit of an exaggeration here, but it's like all my life has been horrible. That's how dark and disoriented these psalms of disorientation brings us. And so it's like everything you're saying is falling on deaf ears. And so what the psalmist is saying, all those things that used to work, if you would, they're not working. And time is not helping. Time is not healing. No hope is in sight. This is not like a broken bone that you can mend and wait and it'll heal. This is not like an open wound that you can put some medicine on and wait and it'll heal. This is like terminal cancer. It's eating up your body, but it's also eating up your soul. And you've just been told, like, you have weeks to live. This is dark. Okay, how dark? Look at your Bible. The very last word actually in the Hebrew in verse 88 is actually darkness. Right? So, so most psalms of disorientation end with some kind of hopeful statement. I'm going through this and this is happening. But then God, you know, did something great or some kind of praise. This psalm ends in darkness. In fact, this is a literal translation of verse, of verse 18. It reads, you, so God, you have removed lover and friend far from me. And then it just reads real raw. My friend is darkness. Right? Simon and Garfunkel, hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. That's this. And by the way, in, in the Psalms, the entire Psalter, there are more Psalms of disorientation than there are, are Psalms of, of any other genre. And remember, it's a hymn book for the Bible. So in some way, it's supposed to be sung in the church. And if you think about that, there's something about music and there's something about poetry that when times are hard, they help. I mean, personally for me, the music, books, poetry, medicine. Most of my adult life, most of my childhood, they repair me. Maybe you as well. And think about the emotions that we were allowed to, to read here. They are raw, right? You, God, have taken away my lover. In the, in the Hebrew, it's singular. My lover is gone. So whoever that is, whoever my companion is, gone. And they're meant to be exposed by the writer. And what we're going to do now, is let's just think about the writer a bit. Because this is him. This is a maskel. So, of. You see it there in the, in the beginning, of. So, he owns this. Haman the Ezraite. So, he's writing about himself, and he left us this gift, right? This is what Spurgeon says. This good man, Haman the Ezraite, went by his rough roundabout road that some of you have taken, and thus he found himself in terrible places. So, let's just think about this gentleman for a minute, and th- this is so important. He lived in the 10th century B.C., he lived in what was called the golden age of the Davidic kingdom. He, he served under Solomon's reign. So he kind of lived in a time of orientation. He was an enormously brilliant person. His wisdom was compared to that of Solomon. And this is 1 Kings 4.31. It was said of Solomon that he was even wiser than Haman the Ezraite. So the guy who wrote this, Solomon was even wiser than him. In other words, that's not a bad thing to be second behind Solomon. Solomon was given wisdom as a gift. We're not told how, how Ezra ultimately got his wisdom, but he was essentially the second part of smartest person on the planet at that time. But he's also a prophet. 
You can read about him in the Chronicles. He was known as the king seer. So he prophesied before the Lord and he prophesied, preached before the king. So he was a wise man. He was a prophet, but he was also a remarkable musician. So he was employed in the temple to play the harp. He was also the chief percussionist. So essentially he was first chair harp, first chair percussionist in the temple. And you can read about him. First Chronicles gives his job description. This is First Chronicles chapter 15 verse 28. His job was to make loud sounds of joy before the Lord. So loud was good. You know, bang on the drums all day. And he, uh, Haman, did it with a quality and a consistency that was impossible to match. But all that compels, or pales, excuse me, into just nothing. He was a wise man. He was a prophet. Prophet. He was a percussionist. He was, he was a harpist. But he also, Haman was also the choir leader. And he was also the choir singer in Solomon's temple. So he sang solos. And he led the choir in the time of Solomon. He was first. So, you know, he would kind of like sing and he would bring the house down and he would lead uh, the folks in worship and he would bring the glory down. And one of his favorite hymns, the hymns that we see often in the temple uh, worship, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his love endures forever. Okay, give thanks to the Lord for his hesed, his covenant love. So this is God's unshakable, loving loyalty to his people. The guy who wrote this, who's complaining, that was his favorite song. And actually, it's kind of a play on words. His forever love endures forever. And that was, would be like the first song on Haman's playlist. So Haman was de- there the day they dedicated Solomon's temple. And on that day, when everyone would have seen... He sang that song, he led them in worship, and what happened? That is when the Shekinah glory of God filled the most holy place. So just picture this, he's leading the choir and he's leading the music, and if you would, the backdrop of all that is the glory of the Lord filling the most holy place, and and Haman was leading that. Haman experienced that. Center court, almost always. He was outstanding in everything he did. Wise man, prophet, musician, singer, choir leader. And not just doing it, he was like the best at it. But, okay, wonder upon wonders. We find a man apparently suffering under God's hand for a long, long time. Right? See, the mythical voice, wait a minute, mister. You know, the main reason why I go to church is that I can learn to do better so that I can live better so that things will get better. I'd like to be a wise man. I'd like to be number two. That'd be great. Prophet, woohoo, musician, singer. Come on, God, give me, give me, give me. And yet, with all his successes, he has this long period of his life that's dark. Three points. I am, you have, he knows. First of all, if you look at your Bibles in the opening verses there, I, I am. So it starts off good. We know, we know, we don't know what Haman's voice sounds like, but we have his words. The question here, I think, is there, is there a gap between this God that I write about and this God that I sing about and that, this God that I preach about and this God who I pray to? Is there a gap between that God and the God who actually is? 
You know, right? Because this is Haman, right? This is hey man. I mean, hey man, did you see him? Did you hear him? Did you look at him? Second wisest person on the planet. He does everything so well. And apparently he literally does everything. And I did this. There's no sense in the Bible because we don't know about him except what we're told. And everything that we're told is nothing. There's no character flaw. There's nothing that stands out that says, you know how it is when someone's suffering, there's a temptation. Well, that's because, you know, the reason why they're not doing so well is because of, just look at them. They're not doing so well. You could look at Haman and you won't find a fault. So then I said, well, let me check out secondary sources. Is there anything about Haman and other Jewish sources that just maybe a little thing? Nothing. Nothing about him. Um, Sounds like somebody in the New Testament. Jesus Christ. So, verse 1, he makes an open-air statement, you are the God who saves me. So he's actually trusting God as a Savior, which means he knows he can't save himself. As smart as he is, as talented, bright, I can't save myself, I need a rescue. It's Yahweh, C capital L-O-R-D, verse 1, covenant name for God. He's trusting as Yahweh as a Savior, and he's praying, verse 1b, every day I'm praying to you. Verse 2, every day I am, right, crying to you. And indeed, my prayers point to the fact that I trust you as my Savior. I need your salvation because I can't do this for myself. Whether it's practical or spiritual, there's no way I can save myself. So perhaps the first question a Christian may ask in those dark days would be something like, you know, are you spending enough time in prayer? You know, Job's friends, are, are you crying out to God? We've all been there where we've been in a pit and we've had some friends say, are, are you doing enough? He is. He's doing it better than probably all of us, at least me. <laughs> and he's in the darkness. Now, many wise Christians have said there's two kinds of darkness in the Christian life. First, there's the kind of outer darkness trend of circumstances, but there's still inner peace. So you're going through this, through this terrible thing, but you know in your heart of hearts, God is going to take you through this. So you sit there and you endure and you, you wait and you act and you wait. You know he loves you. You sense his love. You sense his hand. You can just almost project it out in your mind. Darkness outside, but inside peace. That's one kind of darkness. But there's another kind of darkness where there's outer darkness and there's inner darkness. And you do not think God is with you. And you don't think about God's infinite love. And it's really hard to sing God is good all the time. And you look at verse 6, 7, and 8. You begin to think that maybe he's against you. 6, you have God. 7, you are God. 8, you have God. So you don't really know what's exactly what's happening. But you know it's like outer darkness and inner darkness. And, and darkness is your friend. We're not told exactly what's happening here. But the things that we do know is it seems to be that he's, he's facing some kind of death, verse 3. It's either imminent or possible, verse 4 and 5. We're not exactly sure that that's the whole problem. And, and, and the bet here is that, okay, uh, he's a massive man with a massive mind and a massive problem, Right? Musician, writer, composer, prophet, choir leader, solo singer, massive, massive mind, massive man, massive problem, heavy thinker with a heavy problem. 
Now, as you think about that, usually the sell is if you're a massive person and you have massive good, then usually your problems are like little, right? It's the people with the small minds and the small spirituality. They have the massive problems because you take it back to small, small, bad, bad. You don't do this. You're not doing that. Blah, 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 blah. And that's why you're the way you are. You can't say that about Haman. He's the second wisest person in the world. And one of the characteristics of wisdom is what? Wisdom takes you down the path with the greatest possible good. You've thought things through. you thought about God and you thought about his promises and you thought about his goodness. That's what makes wisdom wisdom. And just another aside, all the foolish human wisdom tricks that, that kind of seep into Christianity. Again, if he was this kind of guy, that if he really sought the Lord, then none of this would be happening. And the reason why he's in this predicament is because, you know, just look at him and you find the faults. That's so second grade stuff. It's first grade stuff. If you, if you would just lay all your burdens down and if you would get serious with God, then this wouldn't be happening to you. you, you, you come on. Right? Come on. These I am statements of Haman teach us something about the realism of the Bible. Okay, so let me quote from a great work. This is The Princess Bride, the movie. <laughs> and this is, this is a great, great scene. It's Wesley to Princess Buttercup. He says, life is pain, your highness. Anyone who says differently is selling you something. The Bible isn't selling us anything. So, you know, if you're watching or listening and you're thinking about becoming a Christian, if you're wondering whether, you know, if you would want to have anything to do with Christianity, I want you to know that Christianity is the most realistic religion in the world. It's not selling you anything, but it's ready to give you everything that you need. It tells you that you can't do everything right, and it tells you that everything will not always be right, and it tells you that you can be a great Christian and be in darkness for a long, long time. Which makes all those dreadful books, you know, we can get you out of the darkness, paraphrase. You know, we were out of the darkness, now you can too. You know, 1995. You know, please do not try to trivialize something as precious and moving and helpful as reality. Say that again. Please do not try to trivialize something as moving and precious and helpful as reality. Because there is mercy here in this dark psalm. Because oftentimes when people think, you know, I become a Christian and I begin to walk with God, nothing really bad will happen. Okay, so some bad will happen, but not the really, really bad stuff. You know, so bad, bad stuff for a time, yes, but not like verse 15. From my youth, <laughs> darkness. Or I'm a good person now, and I'm doing so much better. I've cleaned my life up. Nothing really bad can happen to me. Well, you would gently say, well, okay, but I know someone better than you, way better than you, Jesus Christ, and he did not have a great life as a man of, on this earth. He was a man of sorrows. He was rejected by his friends. He was tortured and he was killed. In other words, and he actually says this, by the way, that Jesus says in chapter 16, in this world you will have trouble. A very real realist Jesus was. And then the mercy here is the expectation 
if you would, is, is in some ways the meat and potato of how we handle suffering. So that when it comes, as dark as it may be, we're not surprised. And in this case, it doesn't seem like the suffering is his fault. Okay, that's why we went through all the paces of Haman. There is a large possibility that we can exist and we could be put in dark places and it is not our fault. So the false expectation and the idea that, you know, now that I'm really following Jesus, then nothing super bad can really happen to me, even though they happen to Jesus, they won't happen to me. That's not what the Bible says. And the expectation that is if you tied yourself to this truth, knowing that the Bible is not trying to sell you anything, you tie it to the truth, then you can be helped and you can be protected when the troubles come. Because the pain of suffering is, is oftentimes equal to the pain of those false expectations that we have about not suffering or even the length of suffering or should some suffering happen on any level to someone like me. But Jesus said the, the, the servant is not above his master. So there's a mercy here. This is very real. The Bible's not trying to sell you anything. It's telling you you can be a great Christian and you can stay in darkness for a very, very, very long time. And what we find then, as great as Haman was, and he was great, he still needs grace. So he needed grace when the lights were on and everything was bright. He needed grace when the lights were off and everything was dark. And you can't find the switch. That's number one. I am, Haman, as good as dead. Darkness is my closest friend. Number two, you have. So he's praying there. You see it there. Inner darkness. His prayers to God are kind of accusatory, aren't they? He's kind of interrogating God. If you look in your Bible, you, verse 6, you have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depth. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. And you see that word Selah? So, so he's not talking like crazy talk. He's thinking this through. Selah means pause. Pause. So after the pause, he, you've taken away my closest friends. You have made me, the, the, the word would be repulsive, hideous, gross to them. They are accusative and they are interrogating. Look, do you show your wonders to the dead? Do, do their spirits rise up and praise you? Verse 11, is your love declared in the grave? Your faithless in destruction? Have you ever seen the movie, um, The King and I, the older version, Yule Brenner, when, when he was talking to the teacher who he's going to fall in love with and she's giving him some data and he, he goes, how many, how many, how many? Like, tell me, tell me now. That's what's happening here. Do you show your wonder? Do the spirits rise? Is your love declared in the grave? Have you thought this through, God? That's what he's saying. Verse 12, are your wonders known in the place of darkness? So he's saying, you know, I want to be your witness. I used to be your witness. Every place you were at, I was in. I was telling, singing, preaching about you. How can I keep doing that if I die? How can, how can I do all those things if I'm dead? You're stopping me. This does not make sense, God. And he's very, very close to saying something like, answer me, God. Can you, can you imagine saying that to your dad? Answer me. I, can, I can't imagine me saying that to my dad. Haman's real close to saying to God, answer me. Is he blaspheming God? No, probably not. But you know what he's doing? And please listen to this. He's showing the limits of wisdom. He's showing the limits of superior talent. 
He's showing the limits of a superior lifestyle. He's showing the limits of superior service in high places. All the stuff that we crave for, a lot of us do. He's being human. He cannot control his tongue. He cannot control his heart. He's not being respectful. He's not saying to God, your will be done. He's saying, look at verse 15 again, from my youth, I've been afflicted. From my youth, I'm close to death. No, you haven't. He's saying, for as long as I can remember, I've been hurt because of you. Now, I can't speak for you, but I've been there with that kind of terrible, gross exaggeration of a good life with moments of bad. You've never been there for me, God. Now, you may say things like that. You may not. But can any of us say, at least for like a micro moment, we haven't thought that? We can be driven to madness. Even Haman was. Again, whose most of his life was not like what he said in verse 15. Haman, control yourself, but he can't. And we can't always, can we? And in that last statement in verse 18, darkness is my closest friend. He's saying to God, God, darkness is a better friend than you are right now. At least darkness is around. At least darkness is around. And and you have to ask yourself right then, why in the world? Why in the dickens is this in the Bible? And it's a prayer. Right? Where are the sunshine, the lollipop prayers? You know, right? But what we're finding here is what we say often, that the best of men are men at best. And the very fallout of sin is a stain on everyone's shirt, even the incredible people that we know. And when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was carrying sin of Haman's rage against God. Because even someone great like Haman, by his own admission, needs a savior. I am darkness. You have You've done a lot of bad things, God, to me. Number three, he knows. So there's a gentleman named Derek Kindred. He's the head editor at Tyndale. He was, excuse me, the head editor at Tyndale uh, Publishing in Cambridge. And this is what he said about this psalm. The very presence of these prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. God knows how men speak when they are desperate. God knows how men speak when they are desperate. Do you understand this? Can you be honest enough to understand this? Because God put in all the final edits of Psalm 88, right? He's the divine author. So what you find is you don't find in God a squeaky clean moralist. This God gets his hands dirty. This God sits there and can, if you would, takes it. The very fact that this is in the Psalms means he's identifying with us. He's gonna, he's, he lets us let it out. Not all the time, but sometimes. He lets us let it out. Why can he do that? Because he's the God of all grace. He has to be. Haman is the perfect case of why he has to be. There was Adam in the garden and there was Haman in the temple. Both guys, you had it all going for you. You had it all going for you. He's the God of all grace. He knows how we speak when we're desperate. God doesn't have any kind of PR issues. He's okay. He's okay to be identified with a guy like Haman. Haman's crossing some lines. But he's the God of all grace. 
And God is saying to you, and God is saying to all of us through this psalm, I'm your God, not because you were put on a positive faith. And I'm your God, not because you do everything right. I'm not even your God because you want to do everything right. I am your God because I am the God of all grace. Do you know how freeing that is? That we don't have to tap, tap dance our way to God's approval and pleasure? I sent my son to cover all your darkness with his light. I say this often. Perfection is not our God. Perfection is torment in this body. It is torment. Our God is the God of all grace. And again, do you know how liberating that is? Personally, I've learned 30 more times about God in the dark times than I have done in the times of prosperity. And to be really honest with you, I don't like me a lot of times in the good times. I don't like what I think. I don't like what I say. I'm more comfortable with me in the down times. Feel safer with me. I don't like saying that. And I don't like dark times. But for me, it is a personal truth. And the next thing I'm going to say is more by application. And we'll just get right into application. Because of the dark times, God knows. He knows that we can become people who become medicine to others, right? You ask me, why did you choose this psalm? Can I give you one reason personally? I chose this psalm not because I think dark days are coming. I think it's actually the opposite. I think some really good days are coming. And I don't want us to be creepy and uncaring because, you know, we're on the mountaintop and all those poor folks down there in the valley, if they would do what we did and said what we said and prayed like we prayed, then they would be up here with us. I don't want us to ever be that way. This, this is like, you put this in your back pocket, And when the good times come, you remember Psalm 88. You remember Psalm 88. We get close to God in the dark times, but we can help people too. Think about Job's friends. And remember what Job says? Because Job's prayers sound a lot like Haman's. Job said some awfully accusative things to God. But at the very end, God said, Job has honored me. And then he turns to Job and he says, your friends have not. You better pray for them because I'm going to smite them unless you, honor, unless you pray for them. Now think about that. Honor you, God, the things that Job said about God? Why? Well, here's your answer. They were real prayers. Whatever you think about Psalm 88, he was praying to God and he was being honest. Job was angry. Haman was angry. Job was complaining. Haman was complaining. But he never walked away from the God he was telling these things to. Right? God, I don't understand you. I don't know why. This is so dark. But remember what happened when at the very end, when the evil one was defeated and darkness was defeated, the very thing that Satan said in the beginning, is Job, is he good to you because you're so good to him? When that was taken away, what happened? Job went through a trial But at the end, what did he say? Though you slay me, God, yet will I hope in you. Remember the words of Jesus? My God, my God, why have you forsaken, neglected, abandoned me? Those are good prayers. They're honest prayers. A religious person would never pray those prayers. But a Christian would. Someone who needs God, the one true God, as a Savior, they would. 
At the end of the book, The Lord of the Rings, the book, not the movie, there's a great scene. Sam, the friend of Frodo, they're climbing at the very end to the mountain of doom and they're getting close to the end and their strength is just zapped and, and Sam looks at the mountain and it's so high and basically he realizes we're just going to die here. We're, we're, we're just, we're going to die. And then he thinks to himself and he lays down, he curls up, he goes to sleep and I'm just going to die in my sleep. But this is what the text says. Then something begins to happen. But even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned into a new strength. Sam's, Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim as the wheel hardened in him. And he, and he fell through all his limbs, a thrill as he, as he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness or endless barren miles could subdue. He was being turned into something of greatness. That's what darkness does, right? In the darkness is either you say, I'm done with you, God, or you say, I'm here. Though you slay me, yet will I hope in you. Do, you. do you know how bad contemporary Christianity needs to hear that? Because so much of contemporary Christianity is like, you, you want great and you want better and you want great. Come on, let's open this book and great and better. Come on, let's do it again next week. Great and better. Come on, let's do it again. Great and better. Oh, look at you. Oh, look at you. And then darkness comes and all the tricks and stuff not doing a thing. In darkness, you find truth at its realest and rawest and closest state. How do I know that? We just look at the cross. Look at the cross. Everything we sang today, everything we do is tied to the darkest moment in human history. A good man, a perfect man, a loving man goes into darkness for our sins. Let me just close with this. I wrote down some things of, of application. I, I've told you one. These are the things I just like to say. They're, they're quick. They're, they're raw, but they're there. Um, here is trouble without explanation, Psalm 88. But this is a deep post a deep-rooted post that we tie our lives to when the storms come. Second, he knows, he cares. He has done everything to get you out of this darkness and safely into heaven. Third thing, when the good times come, enjoy them. Don't ruin them and don't find fault in them. Fourth thing, Isaiah 53, if you read it, there's so much darkness in Isaiah 53, and it was God behind it all. Be, be weary of that. Final thing, think about Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus and Haman, brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call Haman his brother brother. The final thing, I'll be really brief. 
Do you see in the beginning of the psalm, sons of Korah? Do you remember what we know about the Bible, from the Bible about the people of Korah? Remember when there was that great day when there was a bunch of people complaining about Aaron and Moses? And God basically said, if you're on Aaron and Moses' side, get over here. If you're not, go over there. Remember the, the ground split up and, and the people who were not? It was called Korah's Rebellion. And you read in Numbers 11 that, that the people died. There was a lot of people who died on that day. You read later on in Numbers, I believe it's chapter 23. And what happens is you find that some of the sons of Korah were spared. These wicked, evil people were spared. And now think, think of this God of all grace and this God of mercy. Now, generations following the sons of Korah, who once rebelled, they are the master hymn writers for the Old Testament church. That's the God of all grace. That is a mercy. That's why we read Psalm 88. That's why we need to learn about Haman and how excellent he was. And that's why we need to say again, dark times can last for a long, long time for solid Christian people. And in the end, I'm not talking about the end as in the end of suffering, but the end as in the very end of life. There'll never, ever be a day of darkness again. So what we have in life now is a dot. What we have in eternity is what? Everlasting, perfect life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Psalm 88. Thank you that you, you, you just let us read that and deal with it. People like me sometimes afraid of it. But then, God, in the end, as we think of the whole Bible and the whole story, we see beauty from ashes. We see light stronger than darkness. But we do see in this world darkness as a reality that you will not let us run completely away from. So whatever we need in light of that, whether we need to be a better friend, whether we need to have better understanding of you, or whether we need to talk to you different about our life, I pray that you would give us the grace to understand so that we can to the praise of your glory. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by this sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestatchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His Church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 